0: Andrew Gross, and 10 days ago, I had surgery on my vocal folds. Earlier this year, the surgeon had diagnosed me with vocal fold granuloma and vocal fold paresis. Vocal fold granuloma is a benign condition where growths can appear on the vocal folds. Vocal fold paresis is where the vocal folds do not vibrate properly. this during surgery, the surgeon was able to remove the growths, and pathology reports confirmed they were benign. Also, tissue was harvested from my stomach and transplanted in behind my left focal fold in an attempt to get it to start vibrating properly again. I had to go through this. The prognosis is excellent. However, the road is going to be long. My only goal from this experience is to be able to use my voice once.
1: Thank you. I sound a little different today, don't I? Pastor had asked that I would share a testimony with you. And the other night at rehearsal, I shared a little bit of my testimony with the, with the band and with the singers. And <clears throat> it turned out to be a three-point sermon. So I decided to script what I'm about to say to you so that Pastor still could still have his moment up here. So this particular journey began over a year and a half ago. When I noticed the stinging sensation in my voice, regardless of whether I would talk or sing, something didn't feel right. So I made the trek to Pittsburgh to see a specialist at the voice center at UPMC Mercy Hospital. The initial test results were not good. Vocal fold granuloma and vocal fold paresis. I was taken back, dumbfounded. I didn't know what to say. At that time, my prized possession was my voice. And here, something was terribly wrong with it. I was ordered into voice rest for the summer of 2008, only permitted to speak when absolutely necessary. Ironically, my wife records the summer of 2008 as her most relaxing summer to date. (laughs) I don't think she made it to the first service so I can get away with that. In the fall, I returned once again to Pittsburgh for further testing. The season of voice rest yielded a granuloma that had actually grown larger and a partially paralyzed vocal fold that would need some correction. Surgery was scheduled and the waiting began. I recall those days as being very dark times and I sank into depression. It was as if the music in me had died and I began to wonder about my future as a teacher and as a singer. I questioned God, why would such a thing be allowed to happen to me? Why was I to go through this? The day of surgery came and all went well. The, the surgeon was able to successfully remove the granuloma and also transplant a tissue from my stomach to my larynx. Following surgery, I sat in silence for seven days and waited upon the Lord in prayer and meditation. Attempting to speak once again was a monumental task. Progress was first measured in days which quickly turned to weeks and then months. I knew the journey was to be long, but for a music man and school teacher, it felt like an eternity. After the third month of recovery and therapy, things were not going well. Tests showed that the transplanted tissue was to be inadequate, and that the symmetry of the vocal folds were still skewed. The surgeon was considering a second round of surgery. I remember leaving the hospital in tears. I was given two months to show signs of improvement, where surgery would be his only recourse. Although therapy continued, I knew I was needing a touch from God's healing hands. Hearts and souls from friends and family members, both local and across the United States, were united in prayer during this probationary period. The waiting, the praying, the trusting in God's word. I remember those days vividly. Prayer can change things, and it can change circumstances. I stand here today to profess to you that on the day I returned to Pittsburgh to determine if the second surgery was to be scheduled or not, that not only had the inadequacies been made whole and the asymmetries made symmetrical, but that the surgeon himself could not see where he had performed his work. The vocal folds were in alignment, and the scars had vanished. It was obvious that the Lord was completing a work in me. So here I am today at this juncture, the apex of this journey, to share with you a few words of encouragement and testimony. Please know that God does still work in people's lives today. He can speak to you one way and then another. All you need to do is quiet your heart and listen. Be still and know that I am God. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And wait for the Lord. He conversed with me when I could not speak. He was the song of worship I heard when no one was singing. He was the symphony and no one was playing. He was the song in the night when darkness was at its fullest. I recall those days when... Some semblance of a singing voice began to reappear and my pride began to well back up. And I was planning what big song would I sing to showcase my new voice, a voice that could sing the high notes higher and louder with authority. Then in an instant, my pride fell and my mind went blank and I heard God's voice speak to me. Andy, it's not your high notes I want. It's your high praises. I knew then that I was to offer a sacrifice of praise, a song of worship to him here today. Wentley Phipps, a famous pastor and singer, has quoted. It's in the crucible of your personal private sufferings that your noblest dreams are born. And God's greatest gifts are given in compensation for what you've been through. God's greatest gifts. I'd surely been through a lot, and for months I prayed that God would gift me with a new boat in my driveway. As of leaving for church this morning, it it wasn't there. (laughs) However, I have already found my greatest gift, and that is to walk in communion with our Lord while I am here on this earth. My prized possession is no longer my voice, but my heart of worship and my noble dream is for you to find that too let's worship together
2: me. We can
3: Life anew that we would love what thou dost love, and we'd do what thou wouldst do, Spirit of God, we thank you for the tender and sweet moment and the visible and very present reality of answered prayer and your faithfulness, not only to Andrew, but to each one who would look to you and find their completion in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that in the crucible of suffering, that some of your greatest work is done and your plans and purposes for us are worked out for our good and for your glory. All praise and honor be to you, Lord Jesus. There's none like you, and we worship you today. Amen. seems so terribly unfair to ask one to preach after all of that. (laughs) Before uh, we look to God's Word this morning, I want to say a personal word to you this morning. Uh, Today is uh, my last day in the saddle, so to speak, uh, because starting tomorrow morning, Kathy and I will begin a period, a seven-week period, of sabbatical rest. Uh, each of our pastors is given a time of sabbatical rest in appropriate intervals, and it is my time to take that rest, and um, to tell you that I'm not looking forward to it would be an extreme lie.
2: <laughs>
3: um Kathy and I um, have not had seven weeks together. She's worked outside the home. She quit her job this week. And uh, we've not had a seven-week period together like this um, since the early days of our marriage. And we've been praying that God would reveal himself to us in profound ways during a time of rest and renewal and restoration. And while we will miss all of you, uh, we will not stop praying for you and hope you will not stop praying for us. I'll be back in the office on October the 5th and back in the pulpit on October the 11th. Fall is my favorite time of the year, and so we have plans to travel and to visit with our family and to visit friends. And uh, I have some projects on the honey-do list um, that need to get done and uh, so I'm just looking forward to a time of rest. I'm not going away somewhere to study. I'm not going away for a course or anything like that. I told the elders that right now what I needed the most was just a period of rest. And so tomorrow morning I will take my watch off. I plan to stop the clocks in our home. (laughs) I will not answer the telephone. I don't plan to look at email. I will not respond to voicemail. So if you think I'm being rude to you, such is not the case. I'm being rude to everyone. (laughs) And I just want to shut the world off for seven weeks. And I hope you understand that that is a gift to me. And I, I treasure it as a gift. Not everyone gets this privilege and opportunity and I treasure that gift. But I plan to use it for God's good purpose is in me so that when I return in October, I will return with batteries recharged and spirit renewed that I might be able to take the next leg of the journey uh, along with you. So our pastors, our fine team of pastors and our elders and administrative staff will be watching over things while I'm gone. I've told them to not let me know anything that's going on. Even if the church is burning down, I'll see it on the evening news.
2: <clears throat>
3: so I'd rather not know about any of those things, and I'll learn all about it when I get back. <clears throat> we conclude today uh, this series of summer messages that we've called Summer Stories. Uh, on the parables of Jesus. And I struggled a, a wee bit to know which parable to use to close out this series. And I, I kept coming back to the parable of the Good Samaritan and thinking it's such a classic parable. Everybody knows it nearly by heart. What, what new can, can come out of any preaching on this parable again? So that was enough of a challenge for me that I decided that I would dig into it. And so we're looking at uh, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Keith read it earlier for you. You'll find it if you're using the Pew Bible on page 1066. You may remember several years ago that a very astonishing thing happened in New York City. A construction worker named Wesley Autry was standing on a subway platform with his two young daughters, ages four and six, waiting for his train to come. Suddenly, another man who was on the platform apparently suffered a seizure, stumbled and fell off the platform and into the subway tracks. Just moments later, the headlights of a rapidly approaching train began to appear in the subway tunnel. Acting quickly and with no thought for his own safety, Wesley Autry jumped down onto the tracks to rescue the stricken victim by dragging him out of the way of the train. But immediately, Autry realized that he didn't have enough time. The train was coming too fast and there wasn't enough time to pull the man off the tracks. So Wesley pressed the man down into the hollowed-out space between the tracks and spread his own body over the man to protect him as the train passed over the two of them. The train cleared Wesley by mere inches, coming close enough to leave grease marks on his knit cap. When the train came to a halt... Wesley called up to the frightened onlookers who were standing there on the platform, amazed, and he said, there are two little girls up there. Will you let them know that their daddy is okay? Immediately and for good reason, Wesley Autry became, in an instant, a national hero. People were moved by his act of selflessness and they marveled at his bravery. And what Wesley has done in that situation was indeed remarkable. He had no obvious reason for doing so to help this stranger. He didn't know the man. He had two young daughters to think about. What he did was putting his own life at severe risk. But someone was in desperate need and Wesley Autry saw that need, and was moved with compassion and did what he could to save the man's life. The newspapers called him the subway superman. Another journal called him the Harlem hero. But the headline in one of the newspapers described Wesley Autry in biblical terms. It read, Good Samaritan Saves Man on Subway Tracks. Wesley Autry was indeed a good Samaritan. And many of us, when we first heard the story of Autry's bravery, we wondered, I know I did, if I had been the one on the subway platform that day, would I have acted... As bravely, would I have been as courageous as Wesley? Would I have what it takes to jump down into the tracks with a train bearing down to help that man? Would I have been a good Samaritan that day? Now, there are many people who believe that that's exactly the question that Jesus wants us to ponder in this parable, in this story. And that's why they say that the parable of the Good Samaritan is there. That was the point that Jesus was trying to get across. The parable of the Good Samaritan is undoubtedly one of Jesus' most familiar stories. And the way we usually hear this parable is Jesus' way of getting us to ask ourselves the question Am I willing, when the circumstances arise, to be a good Samaritan to other people? If I see a person lying in the ditch somewhere or in trouble on the highway or on subway tracks in distress, would I be willing to risk my own life to help them? Am I a good Samaritan? But I wonder if that's really what Jesus was saying in this parable. And that's why I think it requires us to take a fresh look at this story. You know this story well. There was a man that was headed toward Jerusalem. And in a village along the way, um, Jesus got involved in a, a rather testy conversation with this man. This man happened to be a local attorney, an expert in the law. And the lawyer evidently did not like Jesus' message. He had heard about this coming kingdom that Jesus was preaching about, and he was pressing Jesus, trying to make him look foolish, trying to pin him to the wall, attempting to expose a weakness or a hole in Jesus' teaching. And we can assume that on the basis of this man, this lawyer's attitude towards Jesus that he was not at all a genuine seeker, but instead he was a bit of a hostile inquirer. So this man, this lawyer, puts Jesus on the witness stand and he began to cross-examine Jesus. And he asked Jesus, Jesus, in your view, just what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus does not answer his question. But he answers the lawyer's question with another question. He says, you're the lawyer. What does it say in the law you are to do? Well, this this man, this expert in the law, knew the, the law well. The law of Moses. And he quoted it. And he said, the law says that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, said Jesus, then you have... Spoken rightly. You, you, you've you got it down pat. You are to love God fully and love your neighbor as yourself. Do this, says Jesus to the lawyer. Do this and you will have life. But the lawyer was not going to let the issue drop so easily. And so he pursues with an objection and he says, but... But I want you to define, there's a problem, Jesus, with your definition of terms. I want you to define for me just what do you mean by the the word neighbor. Be precise. Who exactly is my neighbor? And it was in response to that challenge then that Jesus shared this story, a parable, about the Good Samaritan. It's not the story about a man on the subway tracks but it's like it. Jesus' story is about a man who's, who's traveling down to Jericho and is mugged by a group of thieves and robbers, and the man is left bleeding and near death beside the road. And so, like the man who fell onto the tracks, this man in Jesus' story is in serious life-threatening trouble. He is in desperate need of help. Nothing unusual about that, really. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very dangerous place to travel. In fact, in those days, it was referred to as the path of blood. It was riddled with thieves. It was unsafe to travel there. So the fact that a man was beaten and robbed and left for dead on that road really is not all that shocking. But now, apparently, two very shocking things happen in Jesus' story. The first thing that's shocking is that two people who should have offered help, who could have offered help, in fact, who might have been expected to help, that is, a priest and a Levite, both very religious people, came up and saw the man in trouble, but they did nothing. They did absolutely nothing. They intentionally avoided the man by crossing over to the other side of the road and they continued their journey. Now, don't be too hard on these two religious men. Undoubtedly, they had very uh, many important things to do. Doubtlessly, they were on their way uh, uh, to meetings to discuss how to make the highway safer for pedestrian travel. And therefore, they had no time to stop. But if the first shock in in Jesus' story is that people whom we would expect to help do not offer help, did nothing, the second, and I think the bigger shock is that the very last person that you would expect to offer help is the one who, in fact, ministers mercifully and bravely and rescues the injured man. Because in Jesus' story, He says that down the road came a man. He was a Samaritan. Now, of course, Jesus is Jewish and the lawyer and the rest of the people who were listening to this parable were undoubtedly Jews. Even the characters in the parable, the priest and the Levite, would have been Jews. Maybe even the robbers, we don't know. But introduced into the story comes a Samaritan. And Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Jews and Samaritans had a a bitter history of racial and religious hatred. They would have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Jews and Samaritans were enemies. In fact, not only would the injured man not expect any help out of uh, one of these despicable Samaritans, the injured man probably wouldn't even... Want help from a Samaritan. You see, a Samaritan was viewed in Jesus' day somewhat like a member of Al-Qaeda is viewed today. It would be better for a man to die in a pool of blood on the road than to be touched by a Samaritan. But it is the Samaritan despised and rejected, who is moved with compassion, who tenderly cares for the injured man, and even though they were enemies, he did everything he could to take care of the the man. And that's the story. And so having told the story, Jesus now says to the lawyer, now what I want you to do is define for me the term neighbor neighbor. Who proved to be the neighbor in this story? And isn't it interesting that the lawyer can't even spit out the word Samaritan. All he can say is, the neighbor is the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, as I said before, some people think that what Jesus is is trying to attempt here in sharing this story is, okay, everybody, I want you to go out and be just like the Good Samaritan, be a good deed-doer, and help anybody who's in in distress, and help little old ladies across the street. and, And I want you to imitate the Good Samaritan. Go and do likewise. But I think that there are two problems with that interpretation to turn this into some good moralism. The first problem, I think, is that if that really were Jesus' point, then I think he probably would have told the story differently. He he would have made it into a simple moral example and left out all that troubling Samaritan business what he would have said is that there was a man in trouble and there were three people who could have helped to pass by and the first one didn't and, and the second one didn't, but the third one did. So be like the third one and not like the other two. But this isn't a simple moral story. And that, I think, is the problem in most of our Western reading of the parables today is we look at it as a good moral story. But the parables always have something shocking, something surprising, something unexpected, something to be wrestled with and puzzled over. And in this story, it is the fact that an unwanted, rejected Samaritan is the one who shows mercy. Not the religious people. Not the people that you would expect to show mercy, but it is the member of Al-Qaeda that shows mercy. And that throws a monkey wrench into a simple explanation of this moral story. So there's something more, there's something deeper than uh, in Jesus' story than, okay, go out and be like the good Samaritan. The second problem is even more significant to me. And that is that if Jesus wants to to make the point that he wants us to imitate the courageous compassion of the Good Samaritan. The sad fact is that you and I can't do it. We can't. That is why what Wesley Autry did on that day several years ago on that subway platform is almost incredible. It certainly is remarkable. Almost none of us in this room would have done that. Because it's simply not in our nature to forget ourselves and to risk everything for someone that we don't know. Let's be honest. We would not, most of us, be able in and of ourselves to do that for a complete stranger. That fact was borne out several years ago in a very famous experiment that was conducted with a group of seminary students. What the researchers did was they gathered a group of seminarians together in a classroom and they told these seminarians that that they had an assignment that they were going to have to give a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan and that that talk was going to be recorded and reviewed later by the professors. The thing was that the recording was going to be done in a building that was across the seminary campus and unbeknownst to the students, on the path to the other building where the recordings were going to be made, the researchers had planted an actor to play the part of a man in distress, slumped in an alley, coughing and suffering. The students were going to make a presentation about the good Samaritan. But what would happen, the researchers wondered. What will they do when they encounter a person in need? Would they be good Samaritans? Well, as a matter of fact, no, they were not. Almost all of them rushed past the hurting man. One student even stepped over the man's body as he hurried to teach about the parable of the Good Samaritan. But before you go tisk tisk, and look down your nose at these seminary students who couldn't put the parable of the Good Samaritan into practice, neither can we. Neither can we. Simply knowing in our minds what the right thing to do does not mean that we can do it. If we're going to be good Samaritans, then this is going to be more than a mindset. This is going to require more than a change of mind. I'm telling you today that if we're going to go and do likewise, you and I need to have a change of heart. And that's what this parable is about. is a change of heart. Robert Wuffnow, a professor at Princeton University, once conducted some research about why some people are generous in compassion and, and others are not. And he found out that for many compassionate people, something that had happened to them somewhere in their past, someone had acted in compassion toward them in their past, and that that experience had transformed their lives and gave them a whole new outlook. For example, Waffnell tells the story of uh, a young man by the name of Jack Casey. He was a rescue squad worker, an EMT. Casey was raised in a tough home. He was the child of an alcoholic father. He once said, all my father ever taught me was that I didn't want to grow up and be like my dad. But something happened to Jack when he was a child that changed his life literally changed his heart. One day Jack was having surgery and he was terribly frightened. And he remembers the surgical nurse who stood by him there and compassionately reassured him. And she said to him, Don't worry, Jack. Don't worry. It's going to be all right. I'll be here right beside you no matter what happens, Jack. I'll not leave you. And when Jack woke up again, she was true to her word. And she was still there. And years later, Jack Casey, who is now an EMT, now a paramedic, was sent to the scene of a highway accident. And a man was pinned underneath his pickup truck and Jack was trying to get him out of the wreckage. Gasoline was dripping down on the both of them. The rescuers were using power tools... The jaws of, of death to to cut the metal, or I guess it's the jaws of life, isn't it? The jaws of life. Wouldn't be good if it were the jaws of death. The jaws of life. They were using the power tools to cut the metal, and, and so any spark that those tools uh, could have ignited an entire combustion, a uh, spontaneous combustion, and everything would have gone up in flames. The driver of the truck was... Horribly frightened. He was scared that he was dying. And Jack remembered what had happened to him on an operating table many years earlier. How that nurse had spoken tenderly to him and stayed with him throughout the whole ordeal. And he said and did the same thing for that truck driver. He said, look, don't worry. I'm right here. And I'm not going anywhere. I will not leave you. And Jack said, when I said those words, I was reminded of how that nurse had done the same thing for me, how she'd never left me. Days later, the rescued truck driver said to Jack when he visited him in the hospital, you know, you were an idiot for doing that. The thing could have exploded, and we could have both been burned up. And Jack said to the truck driver, but I just couldn't leave you. You see, something transformed Jack Casey's heart and made him into a good Samaritan. Has that ever happened to you? Yes, it has. The point of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, what the lawyer discovered and what we discover too, is that we cannot stand on the sidelines of life and figure out how to be good, defining our terms. Is this person my neighbor? Is this person my neighbor? Figuring out what we have to do to inherit eternal life. For all of our religious Virtues and attitudes, we can't do it. We are helpless, helpless to be good Samaritans in our own strength. In other words, you and I are the person in the ditch. We are the one who lies helpless and needs rescued. We are the ones who are wounded beside the road. And along comes the good Samaritan. A good Samaritan named Jesus. Despised and rejected. Who comes to save us. Who comes to tenderly speak to us and hold our hands and say, I will not leave you. I'll not let you go. And this good Samaritan, Jesus, Lifts us up into His arms and He takes us to a place of healing where we can be made complete in Him. He found you and me mortally wounded by sin. Men could not help us. Religion couldn't help us. We couldn't help ourselves. What we needed was a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. And He showed compassion toward you and me that while we were yet sinners according to the Apostle Paul, that He died for us. Peter says it this way, that Jesus, this good Samaritan Himself, bore our sins in His body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds, you... We're healed. So while we were still sinners and God's enemies, God saw us in the ditch. God had compassion on you and me. And in Jesus, He came to save us. So the question here is not the lawyers, what's the definition of neighbor? The question is, who has been a neighbor to you? And I'm here to give you the gospel news that Jesus Christ has been your neighbor. The crucified one is a neighbor to you. And we have been blessed so much by God's gift of eternal life, of forgiveness, of sins cleansing, of adoption into His family. We have been so blessed, have we not? But now, because our hearts have been changed, You and I are now called to pass those blessings on to others. We are to pour out this changed heart and pour the blessings that we have received from God and pay it forward to others. We cannot be servants who, having been shown mercy by God, we cannot withhold it from others. So I'm calling us as a church... Because we've experienced the extreme mercy of God. Let's get going. Because our hearts have been changed. Let's get out of the pews and go into the city street. Let's go into the nursing homes. Let's go to the outreach centers. Let's let's help these kids with their school boxes. Let's pour out an offering for hearts for the hungry for the least of these. Because we have experienced the mercies of God. And we dare not hold back because the good Samaritan Jesus rescued us and our hearts have been changed and we have new life and eternal life. Now what we need to do is to go out those doors and do likewise. So says Jesus. That's what this coming kingdom is all about. Father, help us. Because in and of ourselves, we cannot do it. We like to think of ourselves as good moral people who have hearts of compassion. But we know, Lord, that what we do is not done in our own strength. We talk a good game. We talk about right and wrong. But we don't have wisdom or power in ourselves to be righteous. We instead, Lord, lie helpless on the side of the road and even our best moral instincts pass us by on the other side. So I pray, come to us, O God. Come to us again in Jesus Christ. Lift us up out of the ditch, out of our brokenness, and take us to a place of healing where we can experience mercy and grace and then turn it all around and channel it toward others who need to experience the same. Help us this week, O God, to go and do likewise. Now dismiss us with your blessing and your peace. Will you, O God, over these next seven weeks keep watch over this dear flock of God? Will you watch between us while we are apart? And will you keep us reaching out, going deeper, going farther, going to the uttermost parts of the earth, bearing the good news of a good Samaritan who comes to rescue those who are needy and broken and near-dying. Empower us by that Spirit, we pray. Now may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and grant you peace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.